We're continuing our series on Acts. Last week, if you remember, Dan led us through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This week, we're going to take a a rather lengthy piece of text that goes from the middle of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. It's really kind of one story in there. If you have a Bible, um, it might be good to have it open because I'm going to kind of walk through the history of it, and you can you can take a look at it there. Uh, it'll be toward the end, showing some text for you. Apparently, and I found this surprising to think about, uh, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, which you remember last week, uh, they they sold some property, brought part of the money to. Um, Uh, Peter said it was all of the money, and because they had lied to the Holy Spirit, they fell dead on the spot. You would think that this would stop the growth of the church. I mean, what kind of church would you want to attend if there was the possibility that if you walked in and did something wrong, you might have to be carried out? Uh, But it didn't. The book of Acts records that signs and wonders continued to be done, More and more people attended the community of Jesus followers in Jerusalem. Hundreds of people were healed. All kinds of people were healed. Uh, The book of Acts talks about Peter's shadow touching people and people getting healed. The high priests and the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. That's what the book of Acts says. That's how Luke records it. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Willie James Jennings, one of the main sources I'm using for this series on Acts, who, as you may remember, is an African-American, pays a lot of attention to the theme of prison in the book of Acts. I had never thought about that theme, but if you read through the book of Acts, you find that that theme is all the way through. In fact, the last scene in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul, and where is he? He's in prison. And Jennings writes this, The prison claims a God-given right to exist. It claims a right to establish order and control as a fundamental tool of worldly authorities and governments. God will again take back what God has given. The power to incarcerate will be trumped by the power to free. The true hearts of the incarcerated are hidden behind mechanisms that lock them away. And only when we follow the angel of the Lord into these spaces of captivity will we see what had been hidden from us. A prison, a system that kills steals, and destroys lives while claiming to keep order and protect the innocent. Our law enforcement and prison systems claim to keep order and protect the innocent. In reality, it kills, steals, and destroys lives. And you all know, of course, that the United States has the highest prison and jail population, the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have 21% of the world's population, uh, 21% of the world's prisoners, while we're only 4% 
of the world's populations. And you, of course, also are aware that black inmates make up nearly 40% of the prison population, but African Americans make up only 13% of the general population. So there's this great disproportionality. Not going to go into that anymore. That theme will come up later as we as we go through Acts. But if you're reading Acts on your own as we go through it, pay attention to this theme of prison and how that just keeps showing up. So the apostles are in prison. But William Willimon says, something about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ, renders prisons ineffective. With the comic speed of an old Keystone Cops movie, an angel sets the apostles free, and by daybreak they're back making trouble at the temple. Then follows an even more comic shuttling back and forth from council to jail, back to council, with the discovery of the apostles busy at the temple teaching. Maybe you remember that story. The apostles are in prison. An angel comes in, lets them out. The council meets in the morning, calls to the prison to bring them. They go to the prison. The guards are there. The apostles are gone. And where are they? They're in the temple, preaching and teaching the same old thing they've been told now how many times not to do. The apostles are brought back to the council, and the council, Acts says, is enraged. And why are they enraged? And this is our constant theme through this early part of Acts again, because the apostles keep accusing them of killing Jesus by hanging him on a tree. I've noted this before. One of the things that struck me this time around in Acts is how direct the accusations of the apostles and early Christians are to the Jewish leaders and Jewish community. You guys killed the Messiah by hanging him on a tree. You murdered, you betrayed and murdered him. So the council's trying to figure out what to do. What do we do with these guys? We can't keep them in prison. And however often we tell them not to preach, they're still doing it. What are we going to do? And then there's this wise rabbi. This rabbi Gamaliel. Remember you remember this. Perhaps you remember this name. He, at the end of all their discussions, kind of concludes it. And if you've ever been in meetings with, where there's this kind of person who just tends to not say much until the end, and then at the end he says the thing that everybody, okay, this is, this is how we're coming out. He tells them the story. He reminds them of two other messianic leaders, Thotis and Judas, who pretended to be messiahs, who ended up being killed, And because they didn't rise again from the dead, it was obvious that they weren't Messiahs, so their movements died. And Gamaliel concludes his little speech by saying this. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice and they let the apostles go. 
Now, I grew up learning that and thinking that Gamaliel was a pretty wise man. It's a wise thing to do. Don't do anything to the apostles because you have the people. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe this is God's work. Maybe it's not. We just don't know. So let's, let's straddle the middle of the road. Let's de-escalate. Let's keep things calm. Let's not rouse things up. Let's just chill out a little bit here, folks, and see what happens. Here's what Willie James Jennings says about Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the quintessential compromised intellectual who reads history from the wrong side and politics for the sidelines. He cannot see the day of divine visitation because it has come in unimpressive flesh. Gamaliel is the politically astute casual observer who did not actually hear what the apostles were saying, even though he listened carefully, So he did not hear the voice of God speaking through them to him, saying, come and follow me. Gamaliel's dilemma confronts us daily and ever raises the question for us, will we see and respond to the spirit at work in the world? For Willie James Jennings, Gamaliel is a compromised intellectual who chooses not to hear and chooses to walk the middle of the road, to straddle the fence, to not commit himself and to wait and see. And this is my thought, not Jennings. I'm just laying it out for your consideration. Perhaps... If someone is sitting in the seat of privilege, it's easier to say, wait and see. When one is oppressed and marginalized, wait and see doesn't cut it. Those of us who are privileged can much more easily say, let's just wait and see how it pans out. Keep things cool. Keep things chill. Don't get excited. Don't raise your voices. Keep it calm. It's going to be all right. It will work out. You can do that if you're privileged. If you're on the bottom, if you're being oppressed, marginalized, perhaps jailed, perhaps murdered, perhaps abused, wait and see doesn't cut it. I think there's a good lesson for us there. To think about Gamaliel. What kind of a person was he really? And why did he say what, what he said? And what does that say about how we approach the crises of our time? So then Acts 6 moves on. And now we're seeing in Acts a movement away from a focus on this, on this initial center core of Christ followers that now numbered probably in the six to seven to eight thousand. We're starting to move away from that group. So the disciples were increasing in number and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So here's the Jews. 
the Jerusalem Jews, in charge of distributing the food. And the Hellenists, and these were, these were Jews who, who were born and raised, had lived for decades and centuries around the Roman and Greek world of the time. So they, they were more Greek than Jewish in their culture. Their widows were being neglected. So seven men were appointed to help fix this problem. And you'll notice that these men were also Hellenists. They weren't Jews. They weren't, they weren't the Jerusalem Jews. They were also of the same group as the people that was being neglected. I heard this line a couple of weeks ago, and I, 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 it's, it's going to stay with me for a long time. Don't talk about me without me. Okay? So they... The, the, the apostles were wise enough, the church was wise enough to bring in Hellenists to try to resolve this problem. So they chose seven people, and Stephen was one of them. And now you're going to notice as we begin to move through Acts even further in the next couple of weeks, uh, Stephen is going to get the center spotlight, and then Philip is going to get the center spotlight. And the other five deacons, we call them now, are, they're never mentioned again. They disappear. Stephen says, Acts is full of grace and power, does great signs and wonders among the people. So who arose now to to, um, dispute with him? The book of Acts says, again, Hellenists. So you see all of the, the, I'll use the word tribal, ethnic stuff going on here. This is is cross-cultural conflict. They arose to dispute with Stephen. They brought false accusations against him, saying that they have, quote, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So what happens? Stephen is brought before the council. And they all gazed at him. And they saw, says Acts, the last verse of chapter 6, that his face was like the face of an angel. What Gamaliel couldn't see or didn't want to see, that something divine was happening, now is happening, now is visible to everybody. I wonder if Gamaliel was in that group. And the high priest says, Are these things true? These accusations that you are blaspheming Moses and God. And then Peter goes into this sermon in chapter 7, and I'm not going to read the whole sermon. It It would just take too long. I'm just going to summarize it. But he goes through the history of Israel, starting with Abraham. God called Abraham and promised him a land, and Abraham moved then to Canaan. But then Jacob's sons, Abraham's grandsons, sold Joseph, their brother, into slavery in Egypt. And because of the famine in Egypt, all of Israel's tribe moved into Egypt. And there they increased and grew strong, and the Pharaoh didn't like that, so he enslaved them for a couple of hundred years. And then Moses rises up as ruler and redeemer, quoting from Peter Stephen's sermon. And the Israelites 
as Stephen describes it, often protested against Moses. They didn't like him a lot of the time either. But after the Exodus, they were in, they were, they were there at the foot of Mount Sinai, says Stephen, and God was speaking to Moses on the top of the mountain and they built the, the golden calf. And then a tabernacle, a tent was built in the wilderness that later became the temple. And then Stephen concludes his speech by saying, yes, but of course you know that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. It's almost like a critique of the temple. He said, you guys built a temple, but even that was actually an act of rebellion because God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands. So at every single possible point, Stephen is punching them in the eye. This is what God did for you. And this is how you responded. Every chance he's taking, he can, he takes to do that, to nail them. And now we're going to read, finally, from Acts 7, verses 51 to 60. This is the conclusion of the speech and what happened. Just a question, Peter, is that I'm seeing a box saying the meeting is being recorded on my screen. You're not seeing that on? Okay. Acts 7 from verse 51. You stiff-necked people, says Stephen to this council, uncircumcised. Now, there was ever a word that was designed to drive them mad with rage. It was that one because their biggest pride was that they were circumcised. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, Gamaliel. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see, he's just, he's just pounding them with the strongest possible language. Now, when they heard these things, obviously, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, you see the Holy Spirit coming in all this story? Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was the last straw, this son of man thing. We'll come back to that in a second. That was the last straw. Now he had to go. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This son of man was the dog whistle 
that did Stephen in. It was the term he used that enraged them to such an extent that they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and stoned him. I didn't study much about, you may have the question, how could they do that? I thought Jews weren't allowed to execute people. I didn't study that very much. I just didn't have time to deal with that question. But that is an interesting question. How, within the system of Rome and the system of laws of that time, how was that able to happen? But we'll just set that aside for now. They took him out. They put off their coats so that they were more free. And they stoned him to death. Because of this son of man. The son of man was a dog whistle. And it brought into their heads, because they were the learned ones of Jew, Jewish history and the, old, and, and the Jewish Bible. They knew immediately what he was referring to. And it was a passage in Daniel. You remember Daniel, this young, strong Jewish young man. Who when Jerusalem was carried into exile in Babylon was taken because the Lord was with him, he, he reached a very high place in the, in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and then now in, ba- in Belshazzar. And while he was serving Belshazzar, Daniel had a couple of visions. And in the very first one, he speaks of the Son of Man. Let me project those verses so you can follow it. Daniel seven thirteen to 14. I saw in the night... Visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who's this son of man? This king. To him was given dominion. Glory. And a kingdom. All of the things that empire grabs for and uses violence and oppression and even prisons to get. Why? So that all peoples, and here in in the New Testament is this word all again, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away and it will not be destroyed. No empire will come against it. And when Stephen used those words, son of man, all of this was behind that. And the council knew it. And it enraged them. Because their religious nationalism was being threatened. Their idea of what power was and what glory was, was being threatened. And I say religious nationalism because they, of course, believed that anyone who wasn't a Jew was not part of the kingdom. The kingdom was for the Jews. They were religious nationalists. 
And Stephen was blowing that up by reminding them of number one, that they had killed the Son of Man, and that the Son of Man was going to, with them or without them, work things so that all nations and all peoples would serve him. And this enraged them so that they stoned Stephen. As I'm thinking about, okay, so what? This is a long story, a couple of chapters. What could we take away from it? There's probably lots of things, but here's what I thought of this week. There are in this story at least three responses to the claim that Jesus is king. There's at least three responses to the claim that Jesus' kingship extends to all peoples and that all peoples are going to be liberated and freed because of it. The first one is one we've spent a little bit of time on, that of Gamaliel. Middle of the road, see what happens. Intellectual indifference, as Jennings says, wait and see, not really to commit. Partly because we're in the position of privilege, we don't really have to. Our lives are actually pretty good. Thank you very much, son of man. This is, I think, the biggest danger for us, indifference. If Jesus is king of the world, and if he's doing what the Bible says that he's doing, and if it's going to work out in the way it's going to work out, if Jesus is risen from the dead, to put it in other words, and if the Holy Spirit has actually come, then things should change. The way we live our lives should change. And indifference, middle-of-the-roadism, sitting on the sidelines to wait and see what's going to happen, isn't that appropriate of a response. The other response, of course, is to be enraged, like the council was and the crowd the messengers in prison cry out with a loud voice stop your ears stoning killing betrayal and murder when religious nationalism gets threatened violence can be and often is a result And if you want proof of that in our time, just think back to January 6, 2021. And I say religious nationalism because a lot of the signs at the Capitol, on the Capitol and in the Capitol at that time, had the word Jesus on them. You know that. When religious nationalism gets threatened, one of the responses is violence. And it may be that some people aren't actually violent, but there's an anger inside of them. And of course, Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount says those 
also, I think, a good word. But then there's the response of Stephen. I don't know if you noticed it, because I just read it. As they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where was his home? Where was his safety? Who was his king? He knew that whatever happened to him on this earth, he was safe in the arms of the Son of Man, King Jesus, his friend and Savior. And that gave him the ability to not take the middle of the road, to not respond in rage and violence to those that were trying to kill him, say, Lord, I'm in your hands. Perfect confidence, perfect rest, perfect trust. You see that? I wish I could explain. I don't even understand. But I wish I could, I could get this through to all of us just a little bit. What these words mean in this situation with the stones flying at your head. A mob enraged. For no justifiable cause. Jesus, I'm in your hands. Whatever happens, your kingdom is secure. And in your kingdom, I am secure. Can you say that in the circumstances of your life? And then, and this is, this is just this miraculous thing that happens. He goes a step further. Lord, did you catch it? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's one thing to say, Jesus, dying, the stones are flying in my head. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be safe. Okay, maybe. But this is a whole nother world. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. And this is, of course, the echo of Jesus' words from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what what they do. You see how this being in the kingdom of God drives us outward into the world. Because that's what Stephen's doing here. He's moving into the world with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The heart of the kingdom. Not only to his friends and those he loves, but to his enemies. And not just enemies, but those who are actually throwing stones at his head right at that moment. He has only moments to live. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There's no way Gamaliel's going to get here to this place. He's just not going to. There's no way the crowd, if it stays in its rage, is going to get there. It's not just it's just not going to happen. The only way to get there is to say, this Son of Man, this Jesus, is Lord and King of the universe. He's drawing all people to himself, and he loves everyone. And as called by him, it's my job to go into this world 
and extend his forgiveness and his love and his um, liberation and his healing and his peace to everyone with whom I come in contact, including and perhaps especially those who are throwing rocks at my head. And you will not be able to do this if the Holy Spirit isn't giving you what you need to do it. That's why this is so so applicable for Pentecost Sunday. This can't happen without the Holy Spirit. I pray that we won't be Gamaliel. Pray that we won't be the angry crowd. That will be like Stephen. Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit, receive my spirit, and... Forgive those who are throwing stones at my head. Amen.